Uh, we're in 1 Corinthians 10. If you turn there with me, that would be awesome. I think a lot of us don't realize what's holding us back in life, what the real problem is in our country, and not just in our country, but in our world. And Lord, we, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not calling you Lord, um, I'm confused. I, I am distracted, so it'll just take a minute and then it'll be over. It used to be really bad. It used to be really, really bad. And so, um, in fact, somebody at one point had a, uh, a, uh, a baby with them and there used to be a wall right about here. And, and so, instead of like leaving the sanctuary, they like went behind that wall and I was trying to preach, and this baby sounded, I mean, it just, it was horrific. The baby was just screaming and screaming and screaming. And so I thought to myself, uh, I'll just try to make it funny, you know. I'll just try to uh, be funny about this. And so I said, could somebody tr- uh, help these folks uh, find where the children's area is? It sounds like someone's strangling a cat. And that did not go well. As you can imagine, I... I, I that was, that, was, uh, that was a while ago. I'll try not to do that to you if your baby starts crying. If you start crying, though, I might do that. So, um, so we, we're in 1 Corinthians 10, and, and what I began to say there is that uh, a lot of us don't realize uh, what we're up against in life. A lot of us don't understand um, what's happening in our world. And really, uh, this passage is kind of a criticism towards uh, the church, uh, especially towards this church in Corinth. And what the Apostle Paul is saying to them is he's saying you've got some strong people who think it's okay to eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols and even go to those temples, uh, uh, these idol temples, and, and eat there because they believe that idols aren't anything, which is true. Idols aren't anything. They're not real gods. They're not alive gods. And so they're saying that those aren't real gods, and so we shouldn't care about that. And, but then you have these weak people that have recently come out of this life of idolatry, and they see the strong brother or sister who's eating in the idol temple or eating uh, meat that's been sacrificed to an idol, and they are just kind of put off by that, and they, they think, well, I guess it's okay for me, and so they engage in that, and they're, and they're really kind of destroying their brothers and sisters. But Paul goes on further from that, and he says, the, the issue here is, is that you don't really have a heart for people that don't know Jesus or who, are, who barely know Jesus. You don't really have a heart for them. You don't really care about them. All you care is about you and about your self-interest and, and how you're getting along in life and how you're experiencing life. And let me just tell you that that criticism of that church in that time is also the same criticism of, of us today. Uh, many Christians today do not understand how the positions that they hold, the things that they say, how they, how they are uh, impacting the world around us and how those people are not really able to experience the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, because they're hearing us and what we're saying in our self-protectionism. And we've talked about this numerous times about how politics plays a role in this. And now a lot of us, we don't talk about this in our churches very often because we don't want to sound like we are for uh, you know, one candidate or the other. Um, or there's churches who, who say, I, you know, I am for this candidate or what have you. And so we, we've avoided that. But that example, the politics of the church, is very much a real and present problem in the church today among evangelicals because we don't understand the things that we're saying, how they are um, 
separated from what the scriptures actually say and how they are impacting people around us. And so Paul says in uh, chapter, uh, chapter 9, at the end of chapter 9, he says, uh, But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. And what he's saying is he's saying it takes self-control for you to be somebody who's able to share the gospel. Otherwise, that word disqualified there in the original language really means that your message means nothing. It falls flat. You're really not saying anything because the words that you're saying don't really align with the scriptures or the words that you're saying do not align with what your life says. And Paul says the biggest problem with that is that you're not sharing the gospel through everything that you're doing because he wants people to see that. And so what he says is he says this, and we, we, uh, we took some time last week, and I got about halfway through what I wanted to get through, but I just very briefly want to review for you. In the beginning of chapter 10, the apostle Paul says, for I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all, were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and it goes on. And what he's saying there is he's saying this, I want you to understand that God's people, Israel, had incredible experiences with God. They had these uh, phenomenal experiences with God, and yet what happened in the end is that they were overthrown, meaning this, that their bodies were strewn throughout the desert as they wandered in the desert for 40 years, and that was God's judgment on them, was that they would not be able to enter into the promised land, and ultimately they would die in the desert. And I want to tell you that I think that that's what's happening to many Christians today, is that we're dying in the desert we're dying in the desert because we don't understand how our, how our lives are impacting our world. We don't understand what we're saying to God. We don't understand what's really happening. When I was a kid, one of the biggest problems in my life was I was told, don't do this just because you shouldn't. Don't do this because morally this is wrong. But I was never told why. God gives us the benefit of telling us why. God gives us the benefit of telling us that there's a real problem with the way that we're living our lives. And so what the uh, Apostle Paul points out for us here is he, first he gives us a, a historical example of his people. And he says, this is what they did. They wandered in the desert for uh, the longest time. And what they ended up doing is he gives us some specific examples of what not to do. He says, don't be idolaters. Don't engage in sexual immorality. Uh, don't uh, put Christ to the test. These people put God to the test. They continually sinned. They continually uh, complained against God, and they were putting him to the test until finally God uh, judges them. God, God um, disciplines them, and then ultimately they were grumbling and complaining. What's really key here, though, is in verse 6. I want you to look at that with me. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. That word desire right there is very important. The reason why it's important is that uh, the word there is uh, uh, epithymetus, I believe. If you're a Greek person, somebody in school, you're going to criticize me right now, but I don't care. That's what it looks like. So what the word is, it's epithymetes, I think. And so what, what that means is this, is that it is not just a desire, but it's a great desire. It's like a lust 
And what Paul is saying there is he's saying uh, these things that happened in history, these historical examples, they took place so that you would not be an idolater. And then after he says so that you would not be an idolater, he says do not indulge in sexual immorality as they did. And then he uses the, this phrase, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. I'm sorry. They, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, it was actually verse 7. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, what is he talking about there? He's talking about an idol ceremony. They, they're having an idol festival. And so they sit down, they eat, they drink, and then they rise up and they engage in sexual immorality. And so what Paul is saying here is he's saying that the big problem, the biggest problem that they have is that they have these desires, that they have these lusts, and ultimately these desires, these lusts are idolatry. And ultimately what happens in the context of idolatry is the misuse of very good things that God has given us, like sex. The misuse of very good things that God has given us like money. The misuse of very good things that God has given us, like power. For these people, their, their problems were really, they really revolved around these epi desires, these epic desires that they had, these lusts in their life. And what we identified last week was this, is that every single one of us has this problem. In fact, I read you a quote from David Foster Wallace, who is a, uh, a novelist, and he, when he said at Kenyon College at the commencement speech in 2005, was he said, everybody worships, the only choice we get is what to worship. And what he ultimately says is he says, like if you worship your body or you worship money or you worship this or you worship that, what happens is this. This is a guy who's not a Christian. This is a guy who doesn't believe in the Bible. But he's saying this. He's saying, like if you worship uh, your body and if you worship your intellect and if you worship money, you will never have enough. You'll never get enough of what you want. You're always worshiping this thing. You're always bowing down to it. But that's what Paul is saying. That's what Paul is saying too. He's saying the idolatry, the worship that happens in that idolatry brings about sexual immorality and it brings about this complaining against God and it causes us to misuse money and it causes us to misuse our, our power and, and our bodies and everything that's associated with it. See, this guy, uh, David Foster Wallace, he has identified the very problem that the scriptures are talking about, and that is that when you allow something that is good that God has given us to become your idol and you worship it, ultimately that idol will destroy you. Ultimately that idol will destroy you. Because the longer you go about worshiping these idols, what you find out is that it's not enough, it's not enough, it's not enough, it's not enough. And so what Paul is going to say a little bit later in the passage is he's going to say this. In uh, verse uh, 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And then he says, 
I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. What's he saying there? He's saying this. I want you to run so far away from your over-worship, from the worship of the things around you. I want you to run away from it. Now, what we see in this is we see the reality that every single one of us deals with idolatry. Every single one of us has idolatrous things that are going on in our lives. When sex becomes the number one priority in your life, when you desire uh, some type of stimulation, when you desire some erotic stimulation more than anything else, it ultimately destroys your life. And Paul is saying this. He's saying the reason why I want you to give up making that thing your God in the way that the Corinthians did. The Corinthians had a God that was uh, about sexual pleasure. He had a thousand prostitutes in the temples. They, they had worship of that, and they worshiped through doing these things. Now, we don't call them gods, but ultimately what they are is they are gods. They are ultimately gods. So every single one of us, whether we like it or not, is an idolater on some level, not just with sex. But many of us are idolaters with money, and you can see it very easily. You can see it very easily in your life. You can see how money becomes the ultimate thing in your life. And you, and, and you say, this is the thing that I have to have. This is, this is the thing that matters the most to me. And so as time goes on, when you don't have enough of that, ultimately you feel bad and you feel disappointed or you feel uh, down in the dumps because you don't have the thing that ultimately tells you that you are of value. And so you, you keep trying to gain more and you, you overwork or uh, you steal or you lie or whatever it is that, that, that comes about. But as you're going after money, you just keep going after it. You keep going after it and you never have enough. It never gives you enough. If you worship your money, ultimately it will fail you. It will break your heart. Idols always break the hearts of their worshipers. And as we look in culture, the thing that we see is we see that I, I mentioned this last week, how uh, you can look at the other side of the political spectrum and you can criticize them and you can say this. You can say, uh, I uh, dislike the thing that you're doing. I dislike the ideas that you have. I dislike the policies that you want to make. And ultimately, many times, not all the time, but many times, the policies that you're criticizing on the other side, you're identifying their idolatry. You're identifying the thing that is their God. You're identifying the thing that, that they, want, they, they want everyone to see. They want everyone to know, like, this is the God that you should be worshiping. And so I want to make a rule, an edict, if you will, that says that everyone must worship the God that I have chosen to worship. You see this in uh, the book of Daniel. I don't know if you remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When the king makes a, a golden image in Daniel chapter 3, it says in J Daniel chapter 3 verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth was 6 cubits. He set it on the plain of Dura and ultimately what he wanted was this. He wanted everyone in the whole entire country, he wanted them to bow down and worship this image, bow down and worship this idol. I have to tell you, that the political fights that we see today are very much this. 
that we have a king, and that king is saying that this is the idol that you should worship. It, it, and I'm not talking about just this president. I'm talking about the last president and the president before that. They're always saying every political movement has a golden image that they set up. And they say, when you hear the music, you must bow down and worship this thing. And what takes place is this. Is that these three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they say, we're not bowing down. We're not bowing down to that because we have to worship the true and the living God. We're not going to bow down to that. But I got to tell you something. That you and I, so many times, we side with the king of our choice. We side with that king and we say, I am going to bow down to that idol. I am going to down, bow down to that thing. I am going to bow down and I'm going to worship it. Our country, our world, our lives are fraught with idolatry. They're absolutely filled with idolatry. You see this in the political viewpoints that people have. So many conservatives have this self-protectionism. We want to protect ourselves from these things. But then from the other side, you see this idea of you must bow down and worship the idol of my choosing, my identity, what I've chosen to be my gender, and you must worship what I have chosen here, what I've chosen as my sexuality, what I have done here. I want to tell you that both of these things are equally idolatry. See, at the root of idolatry is essentially this. The root of idolatry is, is an underlying theme in your life that you have said, this is the, the greatest value to me. This is the greatest thing that I want. This is the number one thing. Everything else in my life will be determined a success or failure based on whether I get this one thing. And it comes in this form, just very basic. It's approval. It's the approval of my life and my life choices. I, I, I want you to approve of every detail of my life. I want you to look at me and to say that you value me in every possible way, even the ways that I choose that are against what God has ordained. And I want to tell you that Christian people lovingly and willingly, willingly need to be able to say that I will not worship that God. In fact, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego essentially say the same thing. And they say... Um, in verse 16 of chapter 3 in Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set. Where we have problems is in this. Is that when you look at somebody and you say, I hate your idols, and we get angry at them and we say, forget you. I, I want nothing to do with your silliness, with the craziness of your life, with what you're calling me to bow down to. I'm, I'm not doing that. 
what we miss is this, is this type of response. Oh, king. Oh, president. Oh, right-wing person. Oh, left-wing person. Image-bearer of God. Person who's worthy of dignity, value, and love. I will not bow down to your image. I will not worship the image. And you can throw me in that furnace and you can walk all over me. You can do whatever you want. You can take my rights. You can take my business. You can take everything that you want. But I serve the true and the living God. Oh, king, I will not follow you in these edicts that you've made. I will not follow you in these laws. Do you see what I'm saying? That the root of the things that make us so angry and that are bringing up such problems in our world and in our cities and everywhere ultimately comes down to idolatry. It ultimately comes down to this thing that we say, I don't want to worship that thing, I have, but I have another God. And what we don't do is we don't say, you know, I have the true and the living God. We say, no, I have another God, and my God is ultimately self-protectionism. My God is ultimately whatever it is. And we spit venom, and we do whatever we want in those circumstances. See, what I'm trying to get across to you is this, is that you and I are idolaters at heart. You and I very much want to worship and serve other things. I said this last week. That's what Romans 1 says, that every single one of us in our heart of hearts wants to worship and serve the created thing rather than the creator. And so our task on a regular basis is ultimately this, is to see the idolatry in our world for what it is. But most importantly, it has to start with us. You have to start with you, and you have to say, where is my idolatry? Where is the epi-desire, the most epic thing, the over-desire, the lust, that ultimately has become the God replacement for me? Where is the God replacement in my life? If I lose this, then I, life is not worth living. If I lose this, then I'm done. And God, I hate you because you did not provide for me the thing that I want. If I lose this, if I don't have it. Do you know how, how you identify idols? Is What's the point that you get the angriest? Where's the anger? Where's the fighting? Where's the arguing in your life, in your marriage, in your relationships? Where do you get so upset? Where do you get the most depressed? Where do you get the most of all of these things? That's the identification of an epic desire that ultimately is a God replacement. We don't call it idolatry today. We just say that's my political position or that's my sexual identity or that's my uh, whatever, that's my money or that's my power, that's my control. And so ultimately at the underlying root of all of us begins with sometimes it's approval and sometimes it's just comfort. I just need a comfort right now. I just, I, I need, I need uh, alcohol to make myself feel well. I need these prescription pain medications to make myself feel normal. I need uh, uh, enough money to make myself feel comforted. 
I need these luxuries in life. I need this type of house, and I need this much money in the bank. So I could never give to God's work because I, I just, I, I, I can't, I, I need the comfort of having that. And do you see what's going on there is that when I make those things my comfort, ultimately, God is not my comfort. Why should you not engage in those things? Because ultimately, your hope and your value, your approval, your comfort comes from your sexual interest. Your approval and your comfort comes from an illegitimate relationship that you have. Your, your approval, your comfort comes from those things. And what happens is this, is that people who are Christians don't look at themselves and say, yeah, I'm an idolater. They say, you know, I gotta, you know I'm, I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing all right. When in reality, what Paul is saying about the people of Israel and then what he's now saying about the people of Corinth and what he's pointing ahead to for us is he's saying, we are idolaters. When you value and you've made your God approval through anything, that is your God. That is not the true and the living God. You and I are idolaters. And so you've got approval and you've got comfort, but then you've got this, this, this reality of security. It's a, it's a big topic in politics right now. Our security, our security, our security. And I'm for security. I don't want horrible things, horrific things to happen to my family. But what you and I must understand is that that security ultimately becomes an idol. The underlying root of your political position, of, of your leanings, of the things that you want, really are rooted in a security that you want and that you desire more than the true and the living God. You want this security and you're saying, I will worship and serve this thing through my political affiliations because I believe that security comes in this way and not in that way. Both sides of the aisle deal with this. I've made security the utmost thing in my life and so therefore, that's, that's what I'm all about. Or it's the idea of control. So approval, comfort, security, and control. The idea of control in our lives if, if things are out of control, then I don't know what to do with my, myself. I have a serious control issue in traffic. I, I mean, it, it's, it's phenomenal how the idol of control, I cannot control the Prius in front of me. Like, what, what, do they not put a gas pedal in those things? What is wrong? Sorry if you drive one, Right? Like, it's, it's control to the nth degree. It's, it's saying this. It's saying, I have to have things in control. And if they're not in control, then when I feel out of control, I need to do things that make myself feel in control. This is what makes husbands be demanding. Or wives, for that matter. Sorry. Not my wife. Not my wife. It's, it's what causes us to be demanding, demeaning, controlling the lives of the people around us. Guys, every single one of us is an idolater. 
the Apostle Paul is pointing out to us something. And that is that everything negative that takes place in our life ultimately finds its roots. When, as it comes from people, ultimately finds its roots in idolatry. Worshiping and serving something other than the true and the living God. They are God replacements. And you've got to understand that when we do this, when this happens in our lives, this is when things come undone. This is when our world looks at us and says, you're disqualified from being able to speak because I see nothing in your life that says that you really do worship the true and the living God. See, Christianity has not always been like this. There's a historian by the name of Rodney Stark. And uh, he wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity. And he's talking about when the, uh, the plagues would go through the, uh, uh, that ancient time, early Christianity. And he was talking about what would take place when these plagues would go through. It says this, and he paraphrases here some eyewitness descriptions, and he says, uh, The doctors were quite incapable of treating the disease. People became afraid to visit anyone. As a result, thousands of people died with no one to look after them. Indeed, there were many houses in which all the inhabitants perished through lack of any attention. He goes on to say this, The bodies of the dying were heaped one on top of the other, and half-dead creatures could be seen staggering about in the streets. The catastrophe was so overwhelming, people became indifferent to every rule of morality. Do you hear what he just said? There's a plague going through, and everybody's indifferent to every rule of morality. Where do we see that today in our culture? Morality's out the door. You've stepped on my idol. Morality's out the door. I don't care. I'll lie, I'll cheat, I'll yell, I'll punch you. I will blow you up. I will shoot you if you get in the way of my idol of comfort, of security. Many pushed sufferers away, even their own dearest, often throwing them into the roads before they were dead, hoping to avert catching the disease or contagion. What did the Christians do? The Christians did this. Most Christians during the plague showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves, thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. Many departed their life serenely happy, for they were infected by their neighbors, and they cheerfully accepted their pains. They lost their lives in this manner, and many elders and ministers did as well. You see what's happened? What's happening there? Is that idolatry is the driving force of the evil that is in our lives, that's in our nation, that's in our homes. But people who are profoundly moved by the gospel of Jesus Christ, people who are profoundly moved by what God has done for them, want to do that for other people. Heedless of danger, they take these people in. They say, I don't care if I get sick. I don't care if I get blown up. I don't care if something happens. I don't care what takes place. I am here as a representative of the God of the universe and not of my political affiliation and not of whatever hobby horse I have in life. But I am here because the God of the universe sent the, his son, the son of God, 
And he came in and he took on everything for my sake. And he came into danger and he came into all of these things for my sake. He stood in my place and took the punishment. And so I can take pain and discomfort for others. I can set aside my worthless gods and I can worship and serve the true and the living God. All of us are idolaters. But what you've got to understand is that idols always break the hearts of their worshipers. It will never satisfy you. You will never have enough approval. You will never feel comforted. You will never have the security that you desire. You will never be in control the way that you want to. But I want to tell you, idols break the hearts of their worshipers, but Jesus is the one who allowed his heart to be broken for you. The single most important event in life is that Jesus gave his life and was broken so that you could be whole. Jesus gave his life so that you could set aside all of your differences and you could say, I don't care what you believe. I don't care what your sexual identity is. I don't care what country you came from. I don't care what, what you believe about all these social issues. I love you because Jesus loves you. You're an image bearer of God, and I desire to serve you. How many of us are willing to do that, to apply the gospel to our lives? Paul says this in verse 12. He says, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Who among us in here thinks that they have got it all together? I want to tell you, there's more than we can count. There's probably not that many in this room, but Christians in general. You, you've been a Christian for a while? Oh, you, oh you, 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 uh, you have a quiet time? You... You spend time with the Lord, you, you go to church on a regular basis. Everyone who thinks that they stand need to take heed lest they fall. Idolatry is a real issue, and I'll bet you that you struggle with it. He says this in verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. You are not a special case. You are not unique and the things that you have. And I know that the world is trying to tell you that you are, that you are special and that you should have special rights or you're dealing with something different than any, anyone else is different. So how can God or, or uh, the, the world or whatever expect you to put aside your, your things or, or whatever? Paul says this, there's no temptation that, is, that has grabbed hold of you that is not common to everybody. Everybody experiences the same thing. The same root resides in every single one of us. That root of idolatry. You are not a special case. These strong people were saying, oh, we don't really deal, deal with those things. And Paul is saying, no, you don't understand. You deal with these things just the same way that everybody else does. You're not above everybody else. You haven't arrived. You haven't arrived in your life. 
This also means this. Satan's key goal in your life is, is to tell you that, listen, no one would understand what you're dealing with. The lie that people oftentimes believe when they come to church, I've heard this numerous times, no one would understand what I'm going through. I don't see anybody else here that's dealing with the thing that I'm dealing with. No one would, no one would understand my idolatry. No, we would. Because guess what? There's nobody in here that doesn't struggle with idolatry. The, the core and the root of humanity is ultimately this, that we have an idolatry problem. Israel had it. Corinth has it. We have it. You're not alone. It's a comfort. You're not alone. Someone else is dealing with it. And guess what? Someone else has made it through to the other side. You can say no. You can get by this. You can make God your true and living God Instead of looking to whatever it is that you're looking to, to be your God. Verse 13, the second half. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Let's just, let's just break that down. The, the, the original language is, is, is actually more forceful because it says faithful is God. Faithful is God. Now, why is God faithful? Like, why is that? Why does that tell us who God is? Because ultimately, in the midst of your temptation, in the midst of your lack of self-control with your idol of choice, is that you're thinking to yourself, I can't do this. I can't get through this. I don't know how to. I'm in addiction. I'm whatever. You, I can't get by this because I, the world tells me that this, is, that this is who I am or who I've decided to be. So I can't get by it. No, what a Christian believes is the Bible, and it says, I cannot, and in fact, I will not if it's left up to me. But faithful is God. God is the one who's faithful. He's shown it to us on the cross. He's shown it, shown it to us throughout the generations. God's faithfulness is over and above, miles beyond your abilities to even let go of your greatest sin, the thing that no one can know about, the thing that you cannot tell. The thing that you say, no one else is struggling with this. God is faithful in the midst of your unfaithfulness. He showed it to you on the cross. God is faithful. I've done three words out of that verse. Uh, he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Let's just talk about that for a second. God's sovereignty, God's absolute control, God's He's in the details of the things that you're going through. He's in the inner workings of the very sin that you're dealing with. And you say, doesn't that mean that, God takes, that God's taking responsibility for it? No, I don't think it does. I don't believe it does at all. What it says is this, is that in the midst of God's sovereignty, His absolute goodness, He is restraining evil... And he's given you the ability to get through this. For some reason, God simultaneously is allowing your temptation 
and wants you to, to depend on him in the midst of your temptation. Have you ever looked at your temptations, the things that you're dealing with, the things that you say, I'd like to get rid of this. I want this to go away. Have you ever looked at it in this way? They say, this is a profound opportunity for me to see that faithful is God. God's absolute control in these situations. He's saying this, I know you're struggling now. I know that you think that you can't make it. But God's faithful. God's more faithful than your sin, your idolatry, your sexual immorality, your money, your approval, your comfort, your security, your control. God's faithfulness is over and above your sin, and he is involved in the details of your temptation. Man, I love that. Ah, get it. Like, understand it. See it. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Let's just stop right here. I can't say no. I've always said yes. I can't say no. Because... This is who I feel like I am. And everybody in, this, in, my, in my world is telling me that this is who you are. And it's okay for you to follow your desires. But remember what we said about desires. They're epi-desires. They're epic desires. They're over-desires. It's taking your desires and putting them above God's desires for your life. It's saying, I will define what holiness is, what righteousness is, what these things are. I will say what it is and what it is not. That's what our world says. How can the Bible define what is right and what is wrong? Because the Bible is written by the creator of the universe and he has defined it. And by the way, all you have to do is look at the world and see how things are falling apart. You can have as many nonprofit organizations as you want, but the world is not getting better. Through our efforts, we think that it will, but it does not get better. We think that we're past something, and then, oh, there's another genocide. We think that something else is going to work. If I just try a little bit harder, no. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. It is temptation. You can say no. There is a way out. God's faithfulness opens up a door. God's promise to you is, I will be faithful to you in and through your temptation. And secondly, I will give you a way out. There is a way to walk away from this. And it may be difficult. And you may say, no, my road's worse than everybody. By the way, there is no temptation that is not common among man. How can you expect me to say no to this? How can you expect me to say no, no to these things? You're not dealing with something that somebody else isn't dealing with. That sin is common to man. God will provide you a way out. God's faithfulness goes above and beyond your abilities. God will provide a way out. You are not a slave to your sin. To say this, Matt, you don't understand what I'm dealing with. This goes to the core of who I am. This goes to the core of my identity. My value is found in my finances. 
My value is found in my sexuality. My value is found in whether people approve of who I am. My value is found in these things. Now, you don't understand. Now, I got to tell you something. You don't understand. And when Jesus went to the cross, he didn't go so that you can remain in your sin and so that you could remain enslaved to the things that you desire, your over-desires. Jesus went to the cross in order to release you from that slavery. Our entire world believes that you are enslaved to the things that you're going after. It's no wonder that there is an epic fighting that happens in our world because of this. If I'm enslaved in the things that I desire and the things that I want in, in the Republican Party and you're enslaved to the, the desires and the things that you want in the Democratic Party, you and I are going to fight tooth and nail to the death because that is your God and this is my God. Jesus is the only one who can release you. Jesus is the only one who will release you. Idols always break the hearts of their worshipers. Somebody great said this. Jesus is the only one who has had his heart broken for you. I want to briefly bring up Matt Baldwin as we close. And, and we were just talking this week in, in the office. Matt's one of our elders, and he's on staff here on a part-time basis. We were talking about, um, about finances and stuff like that, and Matt had like a great story that him and I just resonated with um, just way back in the day. Matt, tell us, tell us uh, about that conversation just briefly. We've just got a couple minutes here. Yeah, I don't think I have enough time for this, but we'll try. <laughs> um, I could say a lot. In fact, you should let me preach this sermon. But um, yeah, so uh, I'll just take you back. Um, I grew up in a pretty poor household. Uh, my parents always fought over money. I grew up uh, looking at my parents and just seeing them you know, every fight that they had that I can remember, usually the, it always went back to money. Um, and, you know, we, we were at a Southern Baptist church at the time, and I saw my parents, um, you know, every time the, the, we passed the plate then, and every time the plate was passed, uh, you know, they, they would never tithe. And I just kind of always as a kid wondered why they never did it. And, you know, I saw a lot of other families do it, but it was never really taught, you know, what, what tithing was, what the responsibility was and um, really how to handle my finances. So fast forward, uh, my college years, you know, I got that, that student loan paycheck. Um, many of you guys can um, understand what I'm talking about, where you all of a sudden have money, and you're like, oh my gosh, I get this refund? What is this? And so um, didn't really know what to do with it, so I thought I'd blow it on stupid stuff, um, okay. you know, because it just kept coming. Like every time I needed more money, I would just like sign my name again, and like magically more money would appear. It was fantastic. Um, it's like a money tree. And so I, I got in a lot of debt. I mean, more than a college student should. And I was even working through college. And I mean, I've got a tremendous amount of debt through that. Um, and so, and I always thought, oh, well, I can just pay this off because automatically you, you graduate from college and uh, you get a degree and then someone hands you this money again. Like, it's just this process that you go through where money just falls from a tree because you've got this degree. Um, so I was like, what do I care about how much money I'm spending now? So um, obviously, most of you in this room know that it didn't actually work like that. Graduated in uh, 2008, 
and there were no jobs. I mean, it was just, I mean, all my friends who had graduated with were like working at Starbucks, which is not a bad thing, but it's not what you expect after you get a college degree. So, um, so I was just kind of left in this, you know, the word deferment and forbearance and stuff. Some of you guys understand that was what I was living in, where it was just kind of like, oh my gosh, what's going on? Uh, at the time, I started coming to Outward, and I can remember um, the the uh, bits and pieces of this sermon that Matt preached. Um, this is the part I wanted you get get to. Okay, we're actually there. Okay, good. Uh, well, I have about thirty more minutes, so don't worry. No. Um, so. Matt preached a sermon, um, and he don't give him a big head because it wasn't him, it was God. God was preaching that sermon through Matt uh, to me directly, um, and he, he referenced uh, in that sermon, I think, Malachi 3 or for the storehouse, and he said, you know, this is, this is one of the only things that God says, test me in, and I didn't feel like he was saying, you know, test me in giving so that you can have a bunch of money. Like, I felt like the blessing was just being released from the slavery of my wallet that I had seen my parents were enslaved to. And I, I just remember it rocked me. And at the time, I didn't have any money. I was like, I mean, you know, I was always thinking this, and a lot of you guys will also uh, understand this. I was always thinking, oh, when I get money, then I can tithe. Like, when I have enough money, somehow magically, magically I'll have money to tithe. And it doesn't work like that. Um, God wanted me to take a step in faith uh, in order to, you know, really depend on him, like Matt was just saying. And so I, you know, gave like, I don't know how much, but I just, I was committed to giving, uh, you know, a portion of my, my paycheck first and foremost to God. And um, I've really seen uh, <laughs> blessings come. Um, and so, you know, uh, I got married and uh, Annika and I, my wife, um, I don't think she's here today. Um, I just pointed that out to everybody. Yes, sorry. Oh, I'm going to get in trouble for that. Um, where was I? This is why you get distracted. I see how this works. Wow. Okay. So, um, Annika and I have just kind of, I think we've kind of come to understand that, that this is how the Lord works. And so I can, I just want a couple more stories here. Sorry, Matt. But, uh, so Annika and I were about to have, um, our, our second child and we just committed to, um, you know, doing the budget and just not even thinking, like, the tithe comes out first, right? So what we give to God comes out. And so we're doing our budget. We're about to have our second child. I'd worked for a nonprofit at the time. They kept promising me these bonuses, but they weren't coming. And so we're kind of stressing out about money again, and we're just looking at each other, doing the budget, and it's like, you know, here's what we need, um, and here's how much money we have. And obviously, here's how much money we have didn't equal how much we need. And we were, and you know, we're kind of struggling because you know my wife is pregnant, and it's just an uncertain place to be. And um, I just, I just felt this rock solid faith that like God had really answered when I started to tithe. He has answered, and He has always taken care of me regardless. And so I have to tell this story because uh, it's some people in here love me to tell it. So I ended up getting a job with the state, um, and this is really weird, but. They, they called me to negotiate the salary at the time, and I was just so thankful to get a job at the state because the benefits and, you know, the estate job, it's just cushiony. It's lovely. <laughs> um, so I, I get this job at the state, and the, my, my boss calls me, and she's like, okay, so we're prepared to offer you, you know, this much money. And she only said the first two numbers. And so to me, the first two numbers were the first two numbers and then add $1,000 after that, right? Um, Usually when you, you negotiate salary, I feel like you negotiate it in 
you know, annual, annual salary. And so I'm like, oh, man, you know, that's just not enough. I'm, I, I really want this job, but is there any way you could do, you know, this much? And so she's like, whoa, really? Uh, uh, that's, a, that's a lot more than, you know, the starting, but you, I guess I can go to HR. We're going to need some stuff from you and, you know, to justify it, and then we'll come back to you. And so I was like, man, this, they're, they are really tough at this state. They really negotiate hard for their wages. That's surprising to me, the way they give away our money. No, um, I work for the state still, but maybe not longer. Anyways, so fast forward, uh, you know, Annika and I are, are squeezing by. We just had Violet. Um, we're just thankful that God had given this, this job. And I get my paycheck, and I see it, and I call Annika, and I was like, do you, what, why is it so much more? And this isn't, what's going on here? And so she's like, I don't know. I, don't, I mean, we figured this much. And I'm like, maybe there, there's something messed up. You know, it's the first paycheck. So I get the second one, same exact amount. Okay, what's going on? And so I, I, I go online, and you can look at the wages and stuff and the tiers. And I looked at my tier and my wage, and it turned out I'm making a ton more money than I thought I was. And the only reason it was is because she was negotiating in the first two digits of my monthly salary, and I was negotiating in the first uh, two digits of an annual. So it ended up being a pretty good portion amount more. And so, I mean, like that is just one way that like obviously I didn't do anything and that God had, has taken care of us. You know, we're in this situation right now. We're about to have twins. Um, again, we're, we're, yeah, yeah, you can clap if you want. Just reading through Genesis, actually, talking about, uh, and the commentary said, twins are a blessing from God. So if you don't have twins, I guess you're not as blessed as me. Um, but anyways, so right now we're going through this, this, this phase again where we're, where we're like, okay, we got kind of comfortable, things were good, and all of a sudden we're going to have twins. Obviously, my, my wife's been working part-time, that's not going to happen, and we're like, oh man, these numbers don't add up anymore. You know, should we sell our house? Oh, that's a lot. I don't know what we're doing. We're praying. Two days after we pray, should we sell the house? Should we do this? We get a letter in the mail, this is just recently, that's like some buyers are looking at your house. They'd love to pay this much. They have this specification, and they'll rent back to you your house, which is a big thing when you're about to have twins, and you're like, what do you do you know, when you sell your house and you have twins and you can't like, find a new house? So they're like, they'll rent it back to you for this amount of time. It was like the exact situation that we could have wanted, and we're just like, God answered again. Like, I mean, he just does it. And so, um, I, yeah, I would just go back to that. Like, losing that, that idol of my wallet, it's just so freeing that we can live in faith, that we can step out and we can say, I don't know how this is going to happen. I don't know how the finances are going to come in. Um, but God is faithful and he has been faithful. I mean, from day one of me just saying, I'm going to tithe and I'm going to give to him what is his mm-hmm. and I'll figure out what to do with the rest. And I just, if, if I could just ask one thing of you guys, free yourself from that idolatry, free yourself from the slave of your wallet, of whatever it is that's that's holding you tight, and live um, and test God in His faithfulness, and His word will be true. So, yeah. is that good? Thank you. Yeah. yeah, very good. Thank you, Matt. That's just one example of of uh, the idolatries that we face, and um, that's one one guy in our church. I can attest to those things that God. God answers, and he's faithful in these things. When we give those things up, he, he blesses. I'm not promising you uh, riches. I'm not promising you those things. But I'm, I, what I am saying is, is, is this, and I think what Matt is saying through uh, what he, he just said is that God has been faithful to him 
as he's let that go, and he doesn't have that infighting in his home anymore. It's just, it's, it's hope, it's trust in what God's doing, and his marriage is better for it. And um, so I'll leave it at that. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you uh, for what you're doing in, in your church, and we ask that you would um, just move uh, dramatically in our hearts, Lord, to allow us to release the idols that we have in our hearts and in, in our minds, Lord, that we would give them up to you, Lord, and with each one of the things that we take on, Lord, we, we can give things up to you and just say, Lord, my ultimate approval is going to come from you. My comfort will no longer come from money, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to uh, give to you in, in faith that you're the one who, who gives all good things, and we're just going to trust that that's what you're going to do. I'm, I'm not looking for um, my, uh, my security in any other God but in the true and the living God, and so... Lord, we, we ask you for this. We pray that you'd move mightily in our hearts. We thank you so much for what you're going to do. It's in your name we pray. Amen.